Welcome to the Lorax. Uh, this is a podcast where a new podcast where we take a beloved sci-fi, fantasy, or fictional setting, uh, and then we look a little bit too deeply into all the things its creators didn't really want us to examine. All the nooks and crannies from a sociological, historical, philosophical, and we're warning you right at the top, slightly lefty uh, lens. Um, and also from the top, uh, I, I this, the roots of this podcast are I had a dream about it, uh, <laughs> and I. I <laughs> That just want to you know just want to be upfront about it. Um, my name's Alex, by the way, and I'm joined by my good friend. I'm Khalil, and uh, I received a text one morning from Alex describing this dream that he'd had uh, that we had a podcast called The Lorax, where we went a little too deeply into the lore of science fiction, fantasy, and, and fictional worlds. Um, and then apparently we broke up because I didn't want us to have a Manscaped sponsorship, which yeah. I'm willing to budge on. <laughs> if you're listening, Manscaped. Um, <laughs> We call me. Um, <laughs> yeah, we had we had an issue. You know, money always comes and breaks up the band. But uh, yeah, also uh, for those who may be confused, like later into this episode, um, another name that we we all call uh, Killer is Kinko. Um, that's a name that lots of people use. It's not my pet name for him. <laughs> um, it, well, actually, it kind of is, but it's not that kind of podcast. <laughs> it's um, not that kind of pet name. Not <laughs> exactly. Uh, so this is the pilot episode, so expect it to be rough and ready around the, uh, all around the edges. You should have seen us earlier trying to just get the sound system up and running. Professionals. Um, professionals. Both of us having hosted podcasts before, you wouldn't be able to tell. Um, We're just too damn creative for all this technical shit. Exactly. Uh, but this episode, the first one, is on uh, a setting and a, a game that is close to both of our hearts, Warhammer 40k. And it's a game that's been... You know, very close to both of our hearts, but also kind of over more recent years, it's been kind of distantly close in a way. Like, yeah. you know, neither of us play the game in question, mm. the like in its main format these days. Yeah, I think the last time I actually played Warhammer 40k was when I was 18, 19, and I'm, I'm 30 now for those listening. So it's been a while, but it's it's also, it's it's, there's something about it that, we're going to jump into very soon, but it's the, the setting is so expansive and mad um, that it just hooks you in and you end up reading books, what like consuming media that is aside from little toy men that you paint badly. <laughs> um, so yeah, this, we're going to have a few on this because it's huge. As I mentioned, it's a massive setting, but we're going to be sort of tackling uh, the headline issue with the 40k universe, which is it's co-option you might say by, edgy alt-right fash people especially over the last few years and the handling and mishandling of that vibe by the parent company games workshop yeah exactly um but before we get too serious we're just going to give a because there may be some people listening who who think uh what is warhammer 40k what's going on i actually read a, a news article earlier today where someone called it a niche british tabletop game which i thought was a bit bit harsh one of the <laughs> most profitable companies in the world right now yeah games exactly workshop. yeah um so yeah we're gonna give you a little bit of a rundown on it um so it has its roots in the 80s and like counterculture uh, in the in 1982, there was a guy called Rick Priestley. He was a game designer. He was hired by a company called Citadel Miniatures, which is a subsidiary of Games Workshop. Um, they, at the time, produced miniature figures for Dungeons & Dragons. Um, basically attached it to magazines. People could get them as, you know, those 
uh, spend a pound now and get a free figurine, and then the magazine is six quid afterwards kind of thing. Uh, they brought him in to make figures for people playing uh, D&D. Um, the, uh, the, managing direct, uh, the manager of Citadel at the time was a guy called Brian Ansel, and he asked Priestley to develop a medieval-slash-fantasy miniature war game that could be given away to people. Uh, and that's how Warhammer Fantasy Battle, singular, um, came about in 1983. I guess it's battle as an abstract noun rather than yeah. you know, a number of battles. It's just, you know, this thing called battle. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I guess. And, and uh, it, that's, this is a, a, we'll probably tackle Fantasy Battle in, a, in another episode. Um, there are similarities which we'll catch on to in a bit, but when they made Fantasy Battle, they 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 were they wanted to go a little bit wacky with some of the factions and introduce things like laser weapons and sort of space magic, uh, which is kind of where the first seeds of 40k were sown. Because Priestley had for a long time been trying to develop a, a spaceship combat tabletop game called Rogue Trader, um, which he wanted to mix science fiction with classic fantasy. Um, and, and, and that's a pattern that you see kind of really in the DNA of 140,000 to this day. Mm, and exactly. yeah, we'll go into that a bit later. Yeah, so, but before its release, um, before Rogue Trader came out, Games Workshop actually signed a contract with 2000 AD of, um, of Judge Dread fame to develop a, a board game based around the comic book Rogue, Rogue Trooper. Uh, so to not confuse customers, um, they made Priestley rename his game Warhammer 40,000 colon rogue trader and marketed it as a spin-off from warhammer fantasy battle that's uh, the punctuation colon not the organ yeah exactly um colon rogue trader as a very different no, to yeah it. absolutely that's not the kind of uh, trade goods you want to be pushing around space um rogue trader came out in uh, 1987 uh, and quickly was it was a huge success and became gabe's workshop's most important product uh, and best-selling brand uh, to this day uh, and even Fantasy Battle has, took something of a backseat quite quickly to 40k. Um, we're on the ninth edition of 40k now, and just for full disclosure, uh, I think the last edition I played was sixth or seventh, and I read eighth, but I didn't play it. I think mine was the same, or maybe I stopped a little bit earlier, so I might have been fifth edition that I last played. But you know, we've both been kind of following developments in the hobby from a distance. Yeah, exactly, and the, it's. It's it's it be, wouldn't be unfair to say that it's a juggernaut at this point. Mm-hmm. Like it's it just keeps on rolling. It's hugely hugely popular. Huge makes huge numbers for for Games Workshop. Henry Cavill was uh, defending his hobby to Graham Norton. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and it's become it's it, it hasn't had the cultural renaissance that you might sort of say Dungeons and Dragons has had, like the popular uh, ex- acceptance. Along that, because it's no longer weird and nerdy, really, to play D anD. d Yeah, cooler people play it now, but Warhammer's still sort of on that sort of bubbling under level. I guess because um, Dungeons and Dragons, as a role playing game, it lends itself to you know being a show. You know, there's a lot of yeah. Twitch streams and and live shows mm. and you know cartoon adaptations and stuff. Um, where and and also because with Dungeons and Dragons, you don't need to spend hundreds of pounds on little <laughs> plastic uh monsters or soldiers that's true you know you all you need is a pen and a pen uh, all you need is a you know a pencil and a and some friends yeah and you spend those hundreds of pounds dice. on dice yeah <laughs> uh, so I, I guess there's also dungeons and dragons is a lot more family friendly at the, at the base level it can be as sanitized as you need it to be yeah because in a role-playing game you create your own world Rather than kind of having to adhere to 
a kind of canon universe yeah. that, as we will get into, is not without its problematic elements. Yeah, exactly. And I think the best place to start, and it's sort of a seed for this discussion that we've had a few times, either on trains up and down the country or in beer, beer gardens, is uh, in the, it was November uh, 2021, wasn't it, last mm-hmm. year, that uh, someone turned up to a Games Workshop event. I believe it was in Italy. Uh, or Spain. It, I think it was in Spain, maybe. Um, turned up wearing um, alt-right, basically alt-right symbolism and Nazi-adjacent imagery. On... And had and had painted their army, um, which I think was Death Corps of Krieg. It was some Imperial Guard army, mm-hmm. um, for, for those that care. Had painted them to be kind of uh, Wehrmacht vibe. Yeah. Um, and the issue was that this person was allowed to play against other play- other people, um, was eventually uh, moved on. Although, but... although I think also that person um, uh, won a lot of their matches by default because, because people other people them. didn't want to play against a fascist. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, they, they ended up getting quite far in because people, mm-hmm. you know, they lost. They were just like, I'm not playing. People didn't want to dignify that army with a, yeah, with a match. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it ended up, it, it became pretty popular and it meant that um, the rather it not not being a fascist became pretty popular, but the the news became pretty popular to the point where Games Workshop had to issue a statement that was effectively, you know, um, the fascists in our setting are not the good guys. It, it, in fact, the the opening line from the statement they they say is there are no goodies in the Warhammer forty thousand universe, none, especially not the Imperium of Man. And terms like the Imperium of Man and Imperial Guard, um, things like that. We are going to go into those terms and explain them more if you're unfamiliar with them, but just bear with us for now. Yeah, absolutely. And and there is there's a lot of de- well, there's not a lot of detail. There's a big paragraph afterwards, which you know I won't read out verbatim, but it says Warhammer Forty Thousand isn't just grim dark. We'll come to that as well. It's the grimmest and the darkest. Uh, the Imperium of Man stands as a cautionary tale of what could happen should the very worst of humanity's lust for power and extreme unyielding xenophobia set in. Like so many aspects of Warhammer 40,000, the Imperium of Man is satirical. And that's, uh, the word satire is a, definitely a word that has done a lot of interesting and heavy lifting over the past, you know, few years exactly. in a lot of, uh, a lot of contexts. So, I mean, we'll start with that. We'll start with satire because 40,000, as, as we said, 40K started, it had, had its roots in 1980s, late 70s counterculture satire. You know, around, around the sort of Judge Dredd, Watchman, Punisher kind of stuff. Um, uh, what's what's interesting is that all three of those settings that you've you've just mentioned have, in various ways and to various degrees, had the same or similar problems that we're seeing with Warhammer Forty Thousand, mm. which is that over time they get kind of removed from the context in which they were made because they were you know they were made in that kind of yeah like you said late 70s 80s uh time when there was a kind of like punk pushback against the kind of thatcher reagan Mm. kind of uh kind of vibe um and with distance from that and with time uh people have lost that context and that and that kind of satire um and and it's being taken more at face value in ways that the creators of those materials often are very uncomfortable yeah i think and also it's something i actually read earlier today that uh, the origins of 40k i think either Priestley himself or a lot of the people who worked on it uh, were from birmingham uh, you know a city that is was gutted under margaret thatcher 
and I th- I, th- I think that sort of it's hard. You, sh- you shouldn't mention it. You, sh- you shouldn't mention 40K without mentioning the kind of influences that went into it in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, it, it was about taking that Reaganomics, Thatcherism thing and just pushing it to the nth degree and being like, what if we went wacky with this and we put it in space? And it was also a um, sort of a pushback on the very utopian sci-fi of things like Star mm-hmm. Trek and sanitized you know sci-fi where everyone's happy and vegan and everything's great and there's no racism and all that kind of stuff because you know one of the the great things about science fiction is that it it is a tool to explore different ways to think and different ways to live and different possibilities um and different reflections on the present yes it's important to you know explore utopian or, or optimistic views of the future but if you don't also wonder how bad it could get mm. then you risk falling into that yeah and i think also with the thing with 40k um it brings in um because of its its origin in warhammer fantasy battle it transposes a lot of existing ideas about cultures and races that are inherent in the fantasy genre and basically says what if this but space yeah so, it's a, there's a direct line from tolkien to Warhammer Fantasy to Warhammer Forty Thousand. Yeah, exactly. You know, we have there are the the galaxy of Warhammer Forty Thousand is populated by uh, a surprisingly small amount of alien races, really, when you think about <laughs> it. But just enough that it's marketable and people could buy various factions. So you know, the, we have transpositions of the Eldar, which is space elves, space elves, and like El, like even the word they're called the Eldari. Which is, I think, itself a bastardization of the Tolkien Tolkien's way of, of in mm-hmm. Elvish and it, across Fantasy Battle and 40k, they both are used interchangeably. And you have um, you have the orcs, yeah, which you know, classic fantasy race. Although they were, in 40,000, they were originally called space orcs. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. Just in case you didn't know where they were, <laughs> but <laughs> nowadays they're just called orcs with a K. They they are pretty much exactly the same. You could you could take. Uh, and the Games Workshop would hate it if you did, but you could take an army from um, the Warhammer Fantasy Battle Orcs and put them in 40k, and people would it would be from a from a far away you would be like, well, that's the same thing, you know, they're yeah. basically the same. Um, and you know, there are even some races or species in Warhammer 40,000 that have kind of been uh, sidelined or written out of the law in recent editions, but were very present in the kind of goofy earlier stages of. Uh, one forty thousand. So, mm. you had uh, a race of space dwarves called the Squats, um, and a race of space halflings called Ratlings. Um, were they Ratlings? I I think it, I, Ratlings. I think they have been phased out now. But there were like, um, here we go. Problematic words already. I think mm-hmm. already in the calling life. little people Ratlings. And yeah, stuff. and uh, but I think they are also described in some ways as subhuman or mm. things along those lines. And I, I think this. That actually speaks to something that I don't know whether we need we should cover now or later, mm. and that is the kind of blurring of the lines in how how Games Workshop talk about the universe of Warhammer Forty Thousand, because we've hit upon this term a bit earlier, grimdark. Yeah, and actually that that term grimdark comes from the original tagline. Well, one of the early taglines from One Forty Thousand, which is "In the grim darkness of the future, there is only war," and so that kind of you know grim darkness is is very important to the to the universe. But one of the things that that has really uh, made the discourse around it 
a little bit difficult or fraught is that Games Workshop in IRL or in in real world presentations of of the law, so on, you know on the backs of the boxes and in 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 descriptions of it in in the magazines and stuff, a lot of it is voiced as in universe experience. So it's talked about from the perspective of of a character or a, or a group of characters uh, from that world, and most of that is done from the perspective of the Imperium of Man, the human galaxy-spanning empire, um, and therefore it, it it's written kind of as imperial propaganda. And it used to be in the earlier days of of one forty thousand. Quite, you had two separate ways that they that Games Workshop would communicate. It would be in-universe kind of diegetic kind of stuff that was as if it was coming from the mouth or the pen of someone in that world, and much more kind of objective step back stuff, uh, which was kind of rules and descriptions of of groups and and armies and stuff. Um, but over time, that distinction has become more and more blurred, and so y- you can see why this you you get this kind of problem with uh, you know fascism in the fandom and stuff because these kind of and we'll go into the, the kind of we'll go into the detail of it in a sec, but the this kind of religious militaristic ethno state in space is being described to new players in the words of that same militarized religious ethno state and so people are consuming imperial propaganda as kind of objective fact yeah i, I think that it's Definitely, the way the the, tra- the I think the grimdark is is especially an important point because it became and the thing is it's it's annoying because it's such a good line it's it's a really good line in the grim in, in the future there's only war in the grimdark future it's a really powerful mm-hmm. way to introduce a setting and it's like it sums up the whole vibe yeah exactly and when you're a twelve year old like and you want you look at the box art and you're like ah oh, this is cool mm-hmm. um, and it's war and you know. All that kind of stuff, and and that I think that is. You've the got a Slipknot T-shirt on. Yeah, exactly. You know, and you don't really know how to paint, and you don't really have the money to buy the figurines. But you look look at the box art, um, and like get you know read tatty old issues of White Dwarf in the library and pretend. <laughs> but and that's the problem is that when you are marketing a universe to people who are very impressionable, um, and also you're not just marketing marketing it to children, you're marketing marketing it to their parents, mm-hmm. and what parents want is a very simple good guy bad guy dichotomy. Mm-hmm. You don't want, you know, you don't want to pick up uh, a box of space marines for your little kid and have to like ideologically analyze it for them and tell them exactly. what a fascist is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, from the parents perspective, you're looking at like big guys in armor fighting aliens and from a la- in a lazy perspective and from an easy perspective, you can make that. That's an easy good guy, bad guy, because of human, you know, human centrism and things like that. You sort of think aliens must be bad, humans must be good. Which again, kind of uh, feeds into and is fed by those same preconceptions and kind of metaphors of race that are used in like traditional fantasy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, foreign monsters, aliens, bad. Human home empire, good. Mm. And there's that. I think this is this is yeah this is what this podcast is about because there will be some people who play Warhammer or, or play 40k and they think 
ah, they, they look at it and they go, it's not that you, that, it's not that deep. But that's the problem. When you create an IP that has reams and reams of literature, reams and reams of history, you know, you have dozens and dozens of authors adding to it, like the Star Wars Expanded Universe, you naturally create a disconnect between what people are playing on the table and what people consume as media. And when you go set, set out from a position of being really campy in the 90s and the 80s with funny looking models who are like obviously just like, like weird, with weird faces and cool looking guys. And Mohicans yeah. and like, yeah, the, the also, those early models and, and um, like artworks and stuff were beautifully goofy. Yeah, so wacky, absolutely <sighs> wacky. And and I think that's as well, when you, when you, the transition from that sort of wacky, campy, satirical space, sort of Flash Gordon, but dark kind mm-hmm. of thing, to then suddenly... Bonded Flash Gordon. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's something I would love to see Brian Blessed in. <laughs> but when you get when you take that, Gordon's a twink. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, man. we'll okay. cut that part. No, we'll keep it. We'll keep that in. Um, wow. Um, <laughs> when you when you take that, and as a company, I think that. I think the G Dubs, which is a, a an affectionate term, I think they 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 saw the grim dark thing. People like they're like, oh, people like that. People like that that sort of because all you know, it's better. It's not Star Wars. It's not Star Trek. It's not sanitized. So we'll double down on the grim dark. And the problem is when you double down on the grim dark, uh, and like I said, when you have this 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 reams and reams of material, that you create just a huge gulf between you know what what you set out to do initially and what you end up creating. And on the subject of gulfs, going back to your previous point about audience because I think that's a, that's something that Games Workshop has never really landed on and they've ended up with a very wide audience um, in terms of ages not necessarily the widest audience in terms of other forms of diversity they're marketing it to kids but they're also marketing it to adults because it's not it's not just like a toy for kids you know there, there are huge numbers of adults who you know whether they started when they were kids or started later for whom Warhammer 40,000 means a lot and so how do you market something and sell something in a way that is hardcore enough for adults who want grimdark and also accessible and friendly enough that parents will buy it for kids? And that, I don't think, is something that Games Workshop have got right yet. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I, I think that... Um, so game, I think Games, Work, Games Workshop in some, in some way is high on its own supply in that kind of way. Like, it, it, it's bought itself into its own hype site. Um, and is is dis- like you said disconnected from the fact that there are kids who play these games. Uh, and although yes, um, and I'm sorry if, if this applies to you, there are a lot of uh, young adult men, single young adult men who go to tournaments, and you'll find that that is the the majority of the population. But there are other people who play, and kids will play it with their friends, and they'll make, you know they'll only have a few squads of space marines or a few groups of orcs, whatever. But when you when when they then make that jump and they go, oh, I really like playing it on the tabletop. I, let me buy. I'll buy some books. I'll, I'll start reading about the Horus Heresy. I'll start reading about. Um, oh, I, li- I like the the uh, the Imperial Guards. So I'll start reading Gaunt's Ghosts and things like that. Um, that you start, and like we said earlier, you start funneling them down this this uh, this this pro- this route of propaganda without actually telling them. And it's it's you don't necessarily have to put a disclaimer at the front of every book saying. I mean, maybe you do. Saying, these, I, I think him, that's not a terrible idea. Yeah, so these yeah. aren't these aren't good guys. Like this is this in a very in a very Michelin web way. Yeah, like they have skulls on their hats. 
Yeah. And, you know, they, they, they're all about like genocidal crusades and their logos are all like wings and lightning bolts and skulls and crosses and stuff. And that's not ringing any bells, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and, the, and on the subject of propaganda, the art style has changed over the years as well. And we've touched on this a little bit about, you know, it's not as goofy as it used to be, but it's also, if you look at like the composition and the, the kind of the things that are depicted and, and the style, it's, it's looking almost eerily like kind of, um, you know, early 20th century military propaganda paintings, you know, like, you know, there'll be a noble armored warrior on top of a, a big pile of bodies staring into the distance, defending his, you know, civilian home or whatever and it's you know obviously it's very evocative mm. but when you when you said the word propaganda i mean that that rings the bell like it 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 definitely uh as the line between written imperial propaganda and real world words gets blurred the way that we perceive visually uh the imperium and other aspects of warhammer 40,000 has gone with it in a more propagandist direction. Yeah, and I think that's that's a, a great point for us to skip uh, to sort of move from the way that Games Workshop uh, and the world is set up to talking about specifically the Imperium of Man and it's uh, how that works in the setting. Yeah, because like there, as we said, there are a whole range of science fantasy races within Warhammer Forty Thousand, and we know that the word race is heavily loaded, and so. We're gonna to have to work out how we talk about that, but we wanna we wanna make sure that we cover a lot of the interesting, weird little aspects of it. But you know, the ostensibly the protagonists of the universe, because they are the the human ones, and also probably the most problematic ones, um, are the Imperium of Man. So that's why we're gonna start. So, Alex, what is the Imperium of Man? Easy question. <laughs> Let me answer that in 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 five succinct minutes. <laughs> Uh, it's a great way to start a segment. Yeah, this is impossible. This is impossible. <laughs> sorry, sorry that you're half an hour deep into this. We can't do it. I mean, we are talking about forty thousand years of history, but let's let's condense it. Yeah. Okay. So the history of the Imperium of Man is split into a, a load of ages. The age that we're currently in is called the Age of Man, I believe, in the law. Um, wait, wait, wait. The age that in twenty twenty two. In twenty twenty two, we're yeah. in the Age of Man. Uh, M two. Okay. Uh, yes. By it, imperial dating, they name they name the date by millennium number. So I believe we are. It, up it's to... it's year. Yeah, it's year number and then millennium number. Right? Yeah, yeah. So we're we're on in the in the Warhammer. So we would be universe. We're actually in M forty two. We're in the forty second. Yes. Millennium. But okay, I did, wait, we're getting ahead of we're getting ahead <laughs> of ourselves. So we recording this now are in I think zero two two. M2. Yes. So the 22nd year of the second millennium. Yes. I don't know why they still use Jesus as their reference point. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. Especially because they've invented their own new space Jesus, but yes, we'll get to that. we'll get to space Jesus. So <laughs> the history of the Imperial Man starts off in a very classic sci-fi way. Humanity spreads itself beyond the, beyond the stars, or into the stars, uh, in a very organic kind of way. Um, let's imagine that NASA got the funding it needed, and then, you know, People, we terraform Mars. We set out into the into the universe, but we can't escape from the solar system. So humanity uh, invents uh, something called a warp drive. Now you don't need to know if you don't know, then don't worry. It basically enables you to travel between systems. 
by traveling through something which is essentially space magic. It's uh, it's a parallel it's a parallel dimension full of space magic. Yes, essentially, exactly. uh, it allows you to travel huge distances in normally very short amounts of time, very short amounts of time. But you also might get stuck in the warp and you know turn up ten thousand years after you left, yes. or ten thousand years before you left, yes, or possessed by demons. Yes, and you can when you hear someone say sentences like that, it's very easy to see why the Warhammer Forty Thousand Universe is so interesting. <laughs> even in that short sentence, that's like that's like five or six different like storylines, like Edgar Allan Poe like stories. Mm-hmm. So humanity invented the warp drive, uh, and to travel the warp safely because it's mad, they had to gene edit the human uh, DNA to create the navigators, who are essentially people who can drive through the warp because they have a special eye that can see through it properly. Yeah, they're um, psychic space wizard navigators. Yeah, heavily, heavily um, influenced by Dune and the Navigator Guild in Dune. Um, Except and, these ones don't take drugs. They just... Well, they might. True. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. So <laughs> humanity, uh, and, and interestingly at this point, humanity actually cooperated with aliens. There's a very throwaway line, but they fought some, cooperated with others, and generally spread amongst the stars and created a, a pretty good... Um, ga- not exactly galaxy spanning, but at least multiple systems spanning, and uh, and then it all went wrong. Um, and how did it go wrong? Well, there are in the warp. There are things called warp storms, which occur like a, a storm in the regular planet Earth. Goes. Imagine if a if there was a storm at sea, but it was full of LSD and aliens. Exactly, uh, and time travel. And time travel. <laughs> now that's bad, but. Imagine thousands of those sprang up across... You don't think that's bad. <laughs> across every section of the uh, of the human, the nascent human empire. Um, and please don't expect me to be like a Wikipedia round off exactly when this happened. But that became known as the Age of Strife. So basically all of these um, human settlements across the, the galaxy become cut off from each other. Which means that it's no longer, you know, a, a, a galactic community... It's several disconnected communities that, you know, for, uh, for for a long time evolve culturally and sometimes physically uh, in kind of somewhat divergent directions. Exactly. And that, that in and of itself creates question marks when it comes to later aspects of the Imperial, the Imperial of Man's history. So it's at the time of the Age of Strife that our, uh, our big man, the Emperor, turns up. And this, this, this guy is... This guy is... Uh... This guy's a long and somewhat confusing backstory. Yeah. So, as far as I know, and correct me if I'm if I'm getting this wrong, the emperor, the guy who ends up being the emperor, is like he's the the spiritual offspring of like all the wizards and shamans in Earth's history who put all of their power into one muscly white guy. Yes. So that he could. Do muscly white guy stuff. Yes, absolutely. Uh, a, a group of about, I think it's about a dozen shaman and wizards in, I think, what is essentially Assyria or Babylonia, chant themselves to death to create a white guy. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so they chant themselves to death to create a white guy who is effectively immortal. Um, and who spends most of his time up until the Age of Strife, we're talking a good ten to 15,000 years after present-day uh, Kinko and I recording this, when the galaxy's messed up, suddenly decides to turn up and say, hey, actually, I've got a solution, 
and it involves a uh, uh, an atheist ethno state. <laughs> um, while while you were out partying, I was studying fascism. Yeah, exactly. Um, and to cut a huge amount of a Wikipedia short, the emperor turns up, reconquers Earth, which at this point had become a selection of warring uh, techno. Democratic states. Kind of like high-tech Mad Max. Vibes. Yeah, yeah, and in the process, because at this time, uh, Earth is cut off, the whole solar, solar system, in, uh, Earth's solar system is cut off from the rest of the galaxy. And while he's there, the Emperor uh, unifies Earth with his pals, the Thunder Warriors, who are genetically modified people who he then kills immediately afterwards because he's, he's, he's a kind of nice guy. Well, yeah, so because, great, to, to, I think we, need, we do need to pause on the Thunder Warriors for a sec <laughs> because they become, they, they are the 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 precedent for for a lot of what comes after. So he yes. so in order to conquer Earth, this psychic, muscly, uh, magic Jesus guy genetically modifies uh, a him. He genetically mod- modifies himself a kind of an army of uh, basically seven foot tall psychopaths in armor with guns that fire exploding bullets, and these will later. Be, these are the kind of prototype for what will later be the Space Marine. But because they're so unstable, the Thunder Warriors, once he's used them to conquer Earth, as Alex said, he's uh, they go to live on a farm upstate. <laughs> Absolutely. And so while the Emperor's reconquered Earth, and he, he makes a deal because in this time Mars has become a hellscape of basically everyone. It's like the it's body modification taken to disturbing extremes to the point where the people who live on Mars worship uh, a being they call the techno dragon basically or somewhere along those lines um not the it's not the the machine god the machine god which the emperor co-opts and says i am also the machine god oh is that um, where the omnisire comes yes, from yes so they're sort of two it's it's like its own little holy trinity question you know how <laughs> how we had real life wars over whether whether jesus was god or not god okay so I, i'm 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 a muscly, handsome space wizard Jesus. I'm also the robot dragon techno god. Yes, exactly. He convinces Mars, or most of the people, the, the Mechanicum as, as it becomes, to uh, see him as a god as well as everything else. Because Martian society has become kind of not just their bodies, but you know everything about Mars is essentially a giant series of factories and research stations and stuff. And they're obsessed with finding the, the lost technology from this golden age before humanity was sundered. Yes. So the Emperor takes all of those little things, like Professor X and the Powerpuff Girls, pours it into a bowl, uh, and then he smashes a bottle that says, weaponized ethnostate fascism, <laughs> which pours in, and instead of being shocked and appalled, he's happy. And then when the Age of Strife ends and all the warp storms subside, uh, that then explodes outwards in uh, what is unironically called a crusade. Yeah, it's not just called a crusade; it's called the Great Crusade. Exactly, um, because nothing says we're the goodies like a big Great Crusade. And so, the Great Crusade is ostensibly, on its surface, it is marketed as a kind of a, a, a reunification, a, a reaching out to long lost family. But what the Imperium does when it arrives at these long lost cousins of humanity is say. Alright, so we've got this way of living. You can either do it, or we kill you all. There is no option to just be left alone. Yes, our way or the highway. Um, no matter the fact that for about hundreds to thousands of years, you've lived separately as your own community, and probably have created your own culture, history, 
technology, way of living, government types, religions, um, because we're from Earth and that's where you came from 20 odd thousand years ago, um, either you buck up or we're going to obliterate you. <laughs> and by this point, um, you know, we mentioned the Thunder Warriors earlier. Um, so by this point, the Thunder Warriors have become obsolete because, uh, as we said earlier, they, you know, after being used to conquer Earth, the Emperor decided that they were too unstable and psychotic to be taken beyond Earth. So he made round two, the Space Marines. Well, that's all the Space Marines. So <laughs> the poster children, or well, poster boys mostly, uh, we'll get into that later. So I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll tackle the Space Marines in a second, but it is important to talk about while the Emperor was isolated in the solar system, he may or may not have made a, uh, a extremely dicey decision to make a bargain with what were effectively the personifications of bad uh, impulses, feelings, the chaos gods, chaos incarnate, being creatures who are, and I think it should be stressed, actual gods, not like the weird sort of uh, aphomorphous sort of just like uh, belief system, but actual gods. With with like, you know, they with bodies, although these gods don't live in our universe directly, they no. live in the warp, yes. so they live alongside it. Yeah, and it all kinds of ties together in that way. They are denizens of the warp. And so the Emperor makes a deal, it's supposed, anyway, it's theorised, the Emperor made a deal with these gods to be given power, and with that power, he created uh, 20 mini-emperors called the Primarchs. Imagine 20 remixes of the same single. Like, exactly. They each had different tweaks on the Emperor's kind of, uh, what they call gene seed, which I think is a creepy term for it. Yeah, it is a little bit. Um, but, you know, for example, there's you know one that's big and angry, there's one that's uh, beautiful and delicate, there's one that is emo and broody... You know, yeah, it's a kind of it's a it's a sitcom waiting to happen, really. Yeah, and so while he's making these <sighs> ubermensch, essentially, um, yeah, they cause, are... because they're all like seven foot tall yeah, and exactly. inhumanly fast and, and powerful. Nearly all of them white. Yes, and the only one, yes, because there are only two that aren't white, and one of them is literally like not black as in like a, a black person, but like like cold. He's, he's Caucasian, but he has black skin. Yeah, which is. Well, what a whole kettle of fish yeah, to open that about. Yeah, a lot to unpack. Like, he's not, he's not, he doesn't have African features. He's Caucasian, but his skin is just jet black. Which yeah. is, what a way to get around it. Uh, so, and the other one is, yeah, is, is basically Mongol. He's, yes. He, like Central Asian and just His like, surname is Khan and he rides a motorbike instead of a horse. Yes. But otherwise, all the trappings, all the aesthetics are very... Um, and, uh, yeah, a lot of this is rooted in, and we won't, we won't dive into it too deep, but all of this is rooted in like, very eighty, very eighties, nineties sort of like. You look at the way like D and D when it came out with its its Eastern legendary and things like yes. that, which is like trying to trying to. It's like the eighties version of showing respect, but it's not. But yeah, I'm manage only managing it to do it in a really Orientalist clumsy way. But yeah. also, and um, this ties into what what the aftermath of this supposed bargain with the Chaos Gods is. A lot of the cultural aspects of these twenty Primarchs. Uh, a lot of them actually emerge from where they grow up because they don't yes. grow up on Earth. No, they don't because because of the like you mentioned because of the deal. Um, while he's mixing up that batch of super soldier serum, gene seed. While he's while he's sitting there in his lab <laughs> on his making own. gene seed. <laughs> Mom, don't come in! I'm making gene seed. <laughs> <laughs> um, the chaos gods decide that he's not been entirely true with them and. 
basically blows up his lab and scatters all 20 of them across the galaxy. Uh, nearly all of them land on human worlds, and part of the Emperor's quest is to reunite himself with, and I think it's, it should be stressed in the lore, are described as his sons, but the Emperor does not see them in that way whatsoever. But they see themselves as his sons. Yes, so there's a whole <coughs> daddy issues thing going on. But because uh, he can't have his Primarchs anymore, he uses their genetic material to create the Space Marines. Uh, and so he so he makes his own grandkids. Yeah, essentially, and every legion of Space Marines has the same characteristics as their progenitor Primarch. So the angry Primarch creates angry Marines. The fancy Primarch creates fancy Marines, and so on and so forth. And the the black Primarch creates black Marines because <laughs> that's how it works. So off goes the Emperor across the galaxy with his super soldiers and also not a, not a insubstantial amount of men and with ordinary men and. I mean, you say not an insubstantial amount, millions. Yeah. Like so, yeah. It, I think it's important to note here that the the armed forces of the Imperium is made up of a relatively small number of, but still a very very big army of uh, these kind of super soldier space marines with their you know massive powered armor and high tech weaponry and stuff, but then also just droves and droves and droves of regular people conscripted into the Imperial Army who are and, and and manning the spaceships and stuff who are essentially fodder. They they you know they they their survival is you know measured in minutes or hours. Absolutely. And there because we want to talk about the the actual ins and outs of the Imperium of Man as it sits in Millennium 40 to Millennium 42. We'll cut this very, very short. But the Emperor goes out, con reconquers a lot of the galaxy, finds nearly all of the Primarchs, as far as we know. Um, there are some mystery missing ones. Trillions die. Uh, they meet some aliens along the way, kill them uh, because they're aliens. The Emperor goes out preaching a, a brand of uh, atheism, techno-based atheism, supremacist, humans are better than everyone. Uh, and also this specific way of living as a human is the only way to live as a human. Absolutely. Human supremacy above all things. Gods exist. I know for a fact gods exist. I may be one myself, but but... The Imperial Truth, as it's called in capital letters, is about human supremacy, technology over religion, uh, no magic, no warp stuff. It exists. It's very real. We can see it every day, but it doesn't exist. Don't touch it. Don't go near it. Um, because I think... I'm just going to leave this gun here on the side. Exactly. <laughs> like it's like the it's like the Homer Simpson. Now, pie. If you get eaten, it's your own fault. <laughs> yeah. like, and. It, and it, there's yeah, there's all sorts of things about that where he's tr trying to ignore this very real. It's, the emperor is an extremely flawed character. I find it very interesting that the gods of chaos are just are put. Chaos is used as uh, a synonym for badness. Yes, but the opposite of chaos is order, mm. and so this becomes a struggle between order and chaos that then. The that is kind of immediately assumed to be a struggle between good and evil. Absolutely. There's control and chaos, and that doesn't necessarily mean good and evil. You know, you've got a re militarized religious fa fascist ethno state versus kind of un unknowable forces of kind of unhuman intelligence and space magic. Mm. And they're all terrible. <laughs> yeah, I think that the the emperor. And his hubris essentially leads to a galaxy-spanning civil war where uh, his favourite son, because biblical parallels, uh, turns against him. Um, and not not 
in small part due to his own like his own hubris, his own mm-hmm. lack of ability to 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 his bad uh, parenting. Yeah, his bad parenting. Understanding <laughs> the trauma he's inflicting upon what are very much his his children. Hurt people, hurt people, Alex. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and again, uh, like you mentioned a moment ago, the Horus Heresy, which we will probably have to do its own episode on, uh, our own episode on it, is uh, is again a, a, it very quickly becomes a binary good versus evil when where. And again, this is the difference between tabletop and law, because in the books and things like that, you, you very quickly realize that a lot of the Primarchs who did rebel against the Emperor didn't necessarily do it because they loved chaos and they wanted to be turned into horrible penis demons, and like walking, walking viral like loads or, you know, just like angry, angry men who can't do anything but kill each other. They had re- quite real grievances with the way things were being run. Uh, it's just unfortunate that they, they then become extremely flanderized in a very short amount of time when they interact with what is ostensibly bad. And I think that is a, a games workshop thing where it's like, now they're bad. They have to be so bad yeah, because they can't have them have a point. <clears throat> yeah. And and that's one of the things, the things that games workshop is kind of, that's quite common in games workshop is that they will always take things to, they'll, they'll turn it up to 11. Mm. Um, and that's why when you see, you know, sometimes you'll see discussions of like, oh, you know, what's the most powerful super soldier in science fiction or something? It's or like, what's the scariest alien from science fiction? It's always the one from Forty K, yeah. Because it's all it's it's the most science fantasy rather than science fiction world. It's the most kind of caricatured over the top um, kind of manifestation of it. Mm. And it you know it started off as goofily over the top, and now it's kind of become a a much more kind of edgy over the top. Yeah, yeah, and I think the the thing with space to bring us back on space marines and, and also the imperial the imperial guard as well. But the problem is that the space marines are from an outside perspective they are inherently cool. Like you have to admit, if you if you strip away all the background, they're seven foot tall superhuman soldiers in cool looking armor with gu- like you mentioned <clears throat> with guns that fire exploding bullets and and swords that are chainsaws. Yeah. You know, how can you, how, like I said, as or is a, it chainsaws that are swords? Yeah, it could be. <laughs> That's the real question. Uh, and as a teenager, how can you, how can you look at that and be like, "That's not cool"? You know? Yeah, I mean, I immediately gravitated towards the Chaos Space Marines, who are the the, the Space Marines who rebelled in this galaxy-spanning civil war called the Horus Heresy, the ones who were quote unquote corrupted by the Chaos Gods. Mm. Because they were all the cool stuff you love from Space Marines, but without the kind of oh we're we're good boys and we uh, we we uphold the uh, order of this uh, authoritarian space state. They were much more like the Goth kids. Uh, they put spikes on all their stuff. They put even more skulls on their stuff. Um, they had you know uh, soldiers that would kill their enemies with like giant guitar guns that fired beams of sound uh, and they could summon demons and stuff. So as, uh, as an edgy little kid, I was much more into that than the, than the kind of for the emperor vibe. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I I think the problem is as well, we're talking about how cool space Marines are. You sort of miss out on, and this is the thing about the guard as well, because the space Marines take up a lot of the headlines because Mm -hmm. of what they are. Um, and you know, if you look at every single starter box set for Warhammer Forty Thousand, there's two armies in every box set. One of them is always Space Marines. Yeah, and 
so the Horus Heresy ends, like nearly all the Primarchs die or in, in stasis. This is everyone, everyone who knows 40k is probably shaking their head and be like, oh my god, you've missed out so much stuff. But <laughs> nearly all of them die. Some get put in stasis. The Emperor himself is nearly killed by his favorite son, Horus, who is bl- obliterated apart by the Emperor in a climactic battle above uh, the skies of Earth, or also known as Terra. The Emperor is then interned in something called the Golden Throne. Uh, through which his psychic ability to navigate to enable people to navigate through the warp, uh, he must be fed tens of thousands of other lives. Um, and this is where we come into the lives of the ordinary person. And this is where I come a full circle here, because it's easy to talk about the space marines. It's the same as whenever people talk about living in the medieval Europe times. They talk about knights. They're always a knight. They're yeah. never a, a guy, a, a feudal serf, mm-hmm. you know. And the war. And this is one of those things that the James Workshop tried to put across. James Workshop. Ja- James Workshop. <laughs> James, the founder of James Workshop, Mister James Workshop, tried to put across in his statement, um, where they said the life of an ordinary person in Warhammer Forty Thousand is awful, terrible. The best you can hope for is to be the the space equivalent of a feudal serf on a piece of land in some backwater planet, paying your tithe to your essentially your feudal lord who's a governor of it. But for everyone else, there's you know, there's forced conscription, like massive gene editing. Every major city across the entire Imperium is the worst city you can imagine. Well but it's because and we'll come on to this in a sec, like the Imperium is always presented as being under threat yes. from scary aliens or chaos or anything. And so it's always on a war footing. Mm. And so Every single life in the Imperium exists to serve the war machine of the Imperium. And so whether yeah, whether you're some, you know, uh, city urchin living in a hive world, or whether you are, you know, working in a factory on a forge world building giant weapons for, for spaceships, or whether you're a, an elite super soldier space marine, everyone's life, and this is, again, very reminiscent of a kind of a fascist state mm. is that every life only exists to serve the machine that it is within. Exactly. And I, I don't think it could be put more succinctly than that, that the, the, the absolute hellscape that it is to live in the world of, of Warhammer 40,000, even before the, they, they actually ticked over into the 42nd millennium and things got worse. <laughs> it's like that, like that little narrator and things got worse. <laughs> kind of thing where the whole galaxy was split in half because of there was a huge the, basically without having to go into detail the warp bled into real life and messed up the entire galaxy to the point it split in half and even more crusades have to be launched now to save all these people this is something i really want to talk about and that is that the the answer to everything is a crusade <laughs> um you know when you have a when all you have is a is a superhuman hammer everything looks like an alien nail absolutely um and because the way that it's framed is so often from the Imperial perspective, it's portrayed as, oh, we're these squishy little humans alone in a big dark galaxy, and we're scared, therefore we have to do genocides. Yeah. And that that makes me incredibly uncomfortable. Especially, you know, as a as a mixed British Palestinian person, there's a lot of personal baggage to unpack there. But it also in a more kind of uh, modern uh, con- contemporary context, it does smack of that kind of stand your ground law vibe of like um, George Zimmerman killing Trayvon Martin or Carl Rittenhouse killing those two people in Kenosha. Is that a is that an armed 
person feels threatened, whether they are threatened or not, they feel threatened. And therefore that is a justification to do any act of violence, oppression, genocide. Um, and what, like one of the, one of the scariest things for a person from a marginalized community is a scared person from the dominant community because they have the power to do whatever they want pretty much to keep that feeling of privilege and safety and the inclination to do bad stuff to preserve that because they feel threatened even if they aren't threatened um and it, yeah if it, it feels weird to 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 see it in the real world and see it kind of replicated on a galaxy-wide scale in fiction yeah and i think that is that's an extremely important point and i think that especially what you mentioned about you know the the perceived plight of a dominant uh group like it's important to note that humans aren't they're not backed into a corner they have a galaxy spanning empire they can they are the dominant species in the galaxy every other species is only either some sort of horrible cthulhu-like entity coming out of another galaxy or pockets of resistance in what is a a, a human a galaxy spanning human empire it's not like humanity is under siege it is humanity is the siege yeah exactly (laughs) it's more like people are pushing back against what has already been established to be a hegemonic empire run by humans where they've obliterated every other alien presence to the point where they take over pretty much the entire world and every other alien presence is a nuisance at at best and they they don't really have a word for nuisance Mm. If something is a nuisance to them, it is deemed an abomination or a threat or heresy and must be stamped out at any cost. It's like if you go around someone's house and there's like a perfectly harmless little fruit fly flying around and they're like, I'm going to spend an hour hunting that thing down and I'm going to kill it. Mm. And it doesn't matter if I kill a few of my housemates on the way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if I smash every plate in the entire house killing this fruit fly. Mm. Um, Yeah, it's that kind of from a position of dominance or privilege anything that's not that feels like a threat and danger Mm. um and when you are a galaxy spanning empire with high-tech weaponry and super soldiers and you know uh trillions of lives to draw upon your your fear can be very dangerous for the people exactly there there's you know there are numerous examples throughout the history of the of the law and whatever where they will they'll kill an entire planet to prevent people from having a slightly different view. Yeah, so they, they have this thing called exterminatus. Um, oh, and if we're going to talk about yes. exterminatus, we should talk about the people who do exterminatus. So you know you're the good guys when you have a group of people called the Inquisition. <laughs> Inquisitions, universally known to be the tools of the good guys. Yes. Um, so there is an imperial Inquisition, and their job is not to wage war uh, on behalf of the Empire, but to root out dissent, heresy, space magic, demons, or just political unrest, um, and eliminate it. And they either eliminate it on a small personal scale by walking into someone's office and shooting them in the head, or they can also command forces of, of the Imperial armed forces to help get that done, or they can do a thing called exterminatus, where they essentially do the kind of uh, the British Navy thing from about 150 years ago, where they just they pull up and they park a bunch of ships outside your planet and they destroy the entire planet 
they they shoot it so hard that everything alive on that planet becomes unalive. Exactly. I I think also it's bandied about the term, but it's so it, like when you think about it, it's a re- regular like you t- you turn up on a planet, you say sorry, uh, but the millions and millions of people, creatures, animals, flora, fauna, we're just going to burn this entire planet to the point it, it, it's it, it, the atmosphere is gone. There's nothing. It's a rock. Think like how many how many thousands and or even millions of extinctions you are causing with one press of a button. Yeah. And I think the Inquisition is because something we didn't touch on is the fact that the Emperor, uh, horrible, horrible person and beliefs that he was, was distinctly against the idea of develop uh, religion being a thing. Uh, almost immediately after his death, it switches to being not only you know uh, a, 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 an authoritarian ethno state, but also a theocratic authoritarian ethno state. Yeah, he is the God Emperor entombed in a giant life support throne which allows him to act as a magical space lighthouse, but is fueled by tens of thousands of daily sacrifices. Yes, and th- there's there's this sort of twist of irony which Games Workshop sort of puts out there as if it's like a, oh, it's now the now the, uh, the Imperium of Man has become everything the Emperor would have hated. It's like, oh, well, boo-hoo. You know, like... <laughs> I mean, yeah, he, it's not like he didn't make the entire thing. <laughs> yeah, and th- this is another interesting parallel with the real world, because... Apparently, uh, from what I read earlier today, the imperial religion and the way that it stamps out any kind of divert, di- any kind of branching out as heresy, is extremely attractive to fundamentalist Christians in the in America. And Ooh, funny Christians. that, yeah, because this is if, listener. If you can't see, I'm wearing my surprised face <laughs> because. Um, you know, we're living in a in a modern day now where you would be hard pressed to visit your local church and there not be some diversion from the book or the way that you know a book that was written two thousand more more years ago has to say about morals and ethics and things like that. But there are some people who think that no, that's the only way to do it. Well, you know, um, without wanting to kind of oversimplify this kind of comparison, but look at you know, the amount of blood that's been shed over Protestant versus Catholic or the wrong type of Protestant versus the right type of Protestant or Sunni and Shia or Mm. all kinds of, um, yeah, these kind of uh, divergences within the same kind of family of belief. Yeah, exactly. And I think we've... The problem with a topic like this, and we we discussed about it when, when we, before we recorded, is that there's so, so much the Imperium of Man. It's huge. The point where going through this episode... Kinko and I have said multiple things. Going, we'll have to do an episode about this. We'll have to do an extra bit about this. We'll have to do an extra bit about that. But there are important points that we need to hit in this episode. Otherwise, we're going to end up running to four or five hours. So <laughs> we're going to take a little break. Uh, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about women in Warhammer 40,000. We're back to talk about women in Warhammer 40,000. Both how they're depicted and how they're treated. Uh, I can hear the keyboard warriors from here now. Exactly. And also... Women outside of 40,000, the law, and how women in the hobby are treated as yes. well. And I think it's important that we immediately nip something in the bud because, um, interestingly, uh, something that, that Kinko found in his research was that women have always been prominent in... Uh, yeah, way back in the rogue trader days, uh, in that kind of first line of, of those goofy uh, science fiction... Sci- oh, sorry, those goofy uh, you know models and sculpts, there were two characters called Female Warrior Jane and Female Warrior Gabs, 
who, you know, despite the proportions and, and stuff of those models being a little bit off in those days because of the the, the kind of the, the sculpting technology that was around then and stuff, they were, if you look at them now, very recognizably both, you know, A, women, warriors, but also space marines. They were they are in the same power armor with the big shoulder pauldrons and the you know the the bolt gun type uh, weapons, um, and so for yeah for for all of the the debate that is still going on about oh are women space marines law friendly or should it be a thing they've always been there they've been there since before Warhammer forty thousand was Warhammer forty thousand. Yeah, and somewhere along the way, that was phased out. Yeah, I guess it's because they wanted to tell a tight narrative of um, Bad Dad and his 20 confused sons and their hundreds of confused grandsons. Yeah, and I'm not sure whether you can look at it as sort of a... Because sometimes you look at things from a creative perspective and sometimes you look at things from a marketing perspective. Mm-hmm. And you wonder if at some point they turned around and said, well, we're not. And it, they most likely did. And I'm, I apologize if anyone listening who designed the game, they most likely turned around and went, this is a game for boys. Maybe. Especially when, when you consider the... the Especially back in day. Yeah, the rate when it was created. But also one thing I find funny about Space Marines in particular is that almost all of them have a big helmet on. So, uh, you know, yes, there are there are some individuals like some of the officers and sergeants that are, that are modeled without a helmet, so you can see their face. And those are, you know, in in the mainline models are all men. But it seems like such an easy group of models to allow people to decide that some of them are women. The decision isn't based on the uh, the parameters and the difficulties in creating models. Mm-hmm. They're wearing big armor with big helmets. Yeah. And it's it's not... a story decision. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the interesting point is when... Well, um, I'm going to segue into the the big topic about women, and especially in the Imperium of Man, is that people have, say, the process by which they create Space Marines, which is, a again, like if you want to look it up, there's a long and exhaustive list of the things they do to people to turn them into Space Marines. A lot of gene editing, a lot of inserting new organs. A lot of psychological kind of battering. Yeah. Uh, they have lots of different features that different authors have put into over the years to the point where I forgot. I didn't know this, but... I they have, like, venomous spit. Yeah, venomous spit. They can eat rocks. Their skin apparently changes colour depending on the radiation of the planet they're on. So why are they all white? <laughs> Exactly. That's what I mean. I saw that earlier today, and I was like, "Oh, I didn't even know that was a thing." <laughs> you can be any color you want. All right, I'll be white. <laughs> I mean, that says so much. That says so much. But yeah, I, to be fair, I, I saw that when I was reading a uh, someone trying to defend certain perspectives about the uh, cut, mm. the, the the race of space marines. Um, at some point in the creation of that, they said, "Oh, this can, cannot be done to a woman." Um, because their bodies are too frail yeah. and then they decide and then at some point because they, they were like well we probably should have some um, badass um, female coded um, representations in our, in, our, in our game because women can be fascist too exactly <laughs> so let's make space nuns yeah they decided to make Angry, like very angry, like canonically very angry space nuns 
but also like very sexy space nuns. Mm. Like they they all have this kind of uh, kind of bob hairdo and yeah. like very like body fitting like very like. It's armor that looks like it's a cat suit, but yeah. it's canonically armor. Mm. And they have like obviously the boob armor thing with like fleur de lis, like nipple covers. It's it's an interesting set of design choices. Yeah, it's again, it's it's like it's those in space things. It's Joan of Arc in space. Yes, uh, and it's also kind of the um, the girl bossification of uh, a fascist ethno state. Mm. Like the, it's, yeah. it's kind of like. It, yeah, it's it's kind of the Theresa Mayification of the Space Marines. Yeah, and it's also because they are, they are all they do all have the same that, that sort of Uma Thurman Pulp Fiction mm-hmm. kind of haircut, and it's always the, the hair's dyed white. And also, this is another thing I was thinking about: um, no one's allowed to have sex. Like the Adeptus Sororitas, because they're which is their name, by the way, we haven't mentioned it, but it's the Adeptus Sororitas. So yeah, sisters, sisters, yeah, the sisters of battle. Um, are space militaristic space nuns, uh, and I get I don't know whether the choice was because they're nuns, but uh, because space means can't get it, it means that the sisters about also can't get it. No one's getting laid in forty k. Perhaps that's the problem. So yeah, so, so maybe maybe what it's like you either fight or you fuck. Yeah, and like <laughs> can't fuck you way to maintaining a galaxy spanning. I think maybe life. that would be better. Maybe <laughs> be you know if if they instead of turning up and being like you know comply or die, it's like. Fancy a good time? Yeah. You know, this, the let's, ramp- t- let's talk this out. You know, <laughs> the spaceship comes down and like a group of fucking genetically altered super beings rippling with muscle and fl- walk out in bathrobes. And yeah. Just- and like, and yeah, like of all different, like, uh, you know, genders and body like forms and stuff. Yeah. But like, come on, man, whatever is your deal. We can, we can hash this out. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. So no one's getting laid. Everyone's really angry. Um, and the Sororitas, I think this is the sororitas are defended by a lot of people in the community who think that it's like because there's on the one hand you can say it's not just that it's not lazy it is lazy and it's not lazy like I think Games Workshop have put a lot of effort into building up the the sisters of battle as like a, a functioning part of the imperial bureaucracy and all that kind of stuff but I think yeah, like, I'm not familiar with that I'm not so familiar with that part of the law so yeah. I'm going to follow your lead on that. Yeah, one. it's very much tied to the religion aspect because they are—they're—they're they're an order militant. They're, you know, like the Knights Hospitaller or the Templars in real-world history. They're based around—they're a militant organization based around propagating the imperial religion and stopping people from having thoughts about why the emperor isn't good. Mm-hmm. Why, uh, you know? So, you, so you've got the Space Marines who are uh, kind of super killers who happen to be religious. And you've got the Sisters of Battle who are super religious and also happen to be killers. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I guess there's a decent parallel there. But I think there's also something... And this is The problem is when you are a... I think also when you are a um, male heterosexual Warhammer 40k fan as well, um, there you tend to sort of spot things and you, you come at things from like a, a male heterosexual angle. And like because of the, the, the media that I see and consume, uh, a lot of it is also, I guess, the problem with celibate space nuns who all look like Uma Thurman it's and a, have booba armor. It's all very. It's a kind of. It's also. It's somewhat a control yeah, fantasy thing, and yeah. 
And also, also, you know, again, on the control aspect, there is, yeah, sure, yeah, 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 women can fight too, but you're not allowed to be super soldiers. Yes. You can be space nuns with guns, but you can't be the... All cannon fodder. All cannon fodder, because you can be in the Imperial Army, but you can't be in this elite club of superhuman soldiers because you're girls. Yes. It's it's very much a kind of no girls allowed, like, you know, it's kind of childish. Yeah, it is. And... I think there's, and in a lot of the books, you were talking about this just now, because I've got you reading the Horus Heresy books, um, because you hadn't really read them before. For better and for worse. <laughs> and a lot of them, like, they have, I, I, I don't want to say to the credit, but there are a fair amount of female characters in there, but a lot of them are accessories to the male characters. They do a lot of dying. They do a lot of dying. They are either in distress, really horny for the main male characters uh they're all attractive young women um or in that puritan in the same way the adeptorius or their saints who are yeah blonde haired puritan it's it's girlfriend or none yeah (laughs) yeah i guess that you that's that boils it down because like because women you know women badly represented in fiction generally fall into mum girlfriend or none Yes, and in the forty k literature, you don't get the kind of the, the the maternal vibe. So it's generally sex and religion. Yeah, and I think yeah, your two choice. Yeah, the two choices of any woman trapped in uh, any kind of theocratic um, place or among people who the alt right or fash is in some cases is very much. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that, that, I guess that does make sense. I, I don't, I don't have, I, I guess, don't have first-hand knowledge or even second-hand knowledge of how that works. But yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. So, and, and especially, um, you know, in a world where superhuman beings are real, um, you know, the power dynamic between people is one thing. You know, the power dynamic between men and women normal humans is a thing. But when you've created this echelon of super beings above that, then that adds a whole nother layer to that dynamic. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that's important as well, because from my experience of the law and reading books and source material, and there may be something out there that disproves this, but the world presents a place where, it, in that sort of strange starship troopers kind of way, there's not much overt sexism. You're all equally disposable. Yeah, you're equally disposable, but it's also it also doesn't present a world in which, the, like you said, the power dynamic still exists. It's just not acknowledged. You know, men, women can be commissars, they can be political officers, they can be inquisitors, they can be inquisitors, they can be governors, they can do all this, they can be saints, um, but they can't be super soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know whether that is... It's interesting because also, I don't know whether that stems from that. The, the Women can't be in the military, a real-world thing. That is a huge debate right now. Mm-hmm. You know, women can't be on the military. Or they can't be in certain roles Yeah, or they can't something. be in frontline combat. Yeah. And, and I find, you know, one, I find it very interesting that there is this argument that, oh, like, women are too weak for it and stuff. Like, I mean, as a, as a cis guy, uh, I've never given birth, but it seems like a pretty intense experience. Um... And so to say that, oh, I don't think women are hardy enough to fight or to go through this super soldier creation process or whatever, yeah. 
I, they, I think they can. In a, <laughs> in a fictional world. Yeah, well. exactly. In a fictional yeah, world. Yeah, where you decide what is and isn't possible in your fictional world, and you decide that, that you know, women just aren't, can't sustain that kind of yeah. body trauma. Yeah, so to, to boil it down into... It, they are a machine. They're they're a, a cog in the machine of the nationalist sort of way that the setting operates. In that women are either cannon fodder or breeding fodder, or they're there to have babies for the state, or they're there to die for the state. And they're their two the two states of being. And I think that's where it also bleeds across into the real world for some people mm-hmm. uh, when they see that. And some people get very uppity about the idea of women being super soldiers uh, for probably that very reason. Yeah, and I think you know as well. There might be an element of um, an element of backlash to the partial progress that has been made in uh, gender and sex equality. You know, like I said earlier, from a position from a position of privilege, any movement towards equality feels like a threat. And so, you know, if oh, if they're if they're allowing women to do all this stuff. If they let them become super soldiers, that becomes even scarier. They might be a threat to me. They might be stronger than me. Yeah, they'll be driving buses next. <laughs> and voting and owning property. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of discourse. There's a, you know, there's a very, there's a very, I'm not going to say healthy. There's a, there's a thriving online community um, of, of people who care about Warhammer 40,000 and the fiction of it. Um, and actually some, so there's been some of the fan community that have kind of taken matters into their own hands. Um, so one of the interesting things about the, the Primarchs is that there were 20 mm-hmm. and of those about half of them rebelled, but there are a couple that were officially never found. And so that leaves gaps in the fiction for people at home to make their own Chapters. So the, these groups of space marines that are descended from one of the Primarchs, each one is called a chapter, and they have their own different vibe, their different color scheme, stuff like that. And so you can make your own chapter and just say it's one of the lost chapters. There have been elements of the fan community that have actually taken matters into their own hands. And so there's been, and again, I haven't, and there's been uh, someone whose name, real name I couldn't find, um, potentially for good reasons. Maybe they're, they, they're worried about backlash from uh, from other parts of the community. But uh, their Twitter handle is Pantmonger. And uh, they came up with... Well, I think I think this is their original chapter. Um, but they're, they're definitely heavily involved in, in the creation of it. Really sorry if I'm getting that wrong. Um, and this chapter is called The Daughters of Persephone. And I think there's a lot to talk about here because they are an all-female... Uh, chapter of Space Marines and the the fiction that's been created for them is that sometime between the conquest of the galaxy by the Emperor with the Space Marines sometime between then and the beginning of the Horus Heresy, so the big galaxy spanning civil war that happened this chapter were lost in a warp storm which to them felt like seven months but to everyone else felt like 10,000 years Mm. and then they reappeared um, again, I'm, I'm skipping past a lot of uh, interesting lore, but you can go onto Twitter and uh, go onto you can go onto Twitter and go onto Pantmonger's page and uh, get the codex, the the history of them. Um, and they are, as I said, all female. Uh, 
and it was created as a way for you know people to have a law-friendly way to introduce either all female forces or female members into their existing space marine forces. Now, this comes across uh, issues of like having to use um, unofficial non-Games Workshop heads mm. for their miniatures, um, which can mean that sometimes you're not allowed to play in official tournaments and stuff. So there's a whole lot of stuff around that. But I find it quite interesting that it was... <sighs> That it's kind of a that it's a female only chapter because again we go we go back to the kind of the girl bossification of fascism. Mm. Um, you know, obviously representation is super important, but it's kind of like that 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 pretty Patel thing of like, yeah, okay, cool, women can be evil as well because <laughs> we forget that the Space Marines are the 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 strong arm of a fascist space religious empire yeah and so I, I think there's a lot to unpack there yeah there's plenty and i think it's something that we haven't mentioned and again so many things in this deserve their own episodes but we don't want to turn into a warhammer 40k podcast and you can also transpose this discussion across to the representation of race in for in 40k um especially when it comes to the different planets, the different guard regiments come from, but also different chapters of Space Marines, which are coded poorly, um, as we talked about before. A whole chapter of Space Marines who are Central Asian, ride motorbikes instead of horses, have eagles on their arms. Uh, a chapter of, um, of Black Space Marines who aren't actually African-American, poor African-featured, um, but have black skin. Uh, uh, a, ch- a subsidiary chapter called the Crimson Fist, which I, I had Crimson Fist Space Marines, and I didn't realise when I was a kid, but they're all Hispanic, uh, and they're only you only know they're Hispanic because all of their space marines are called Rodriguez, Hernandez, Torres. <laughs> and, and I didn't know this until well, like one of our original, like uh, one of our preliminary chats yeah. when we were first uh, first kind of cooking up the Lorax, and this had me this had me in stitches, uh, crying into my pint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's like today, if they wanted to, if they tried to bring out a, uh, like a chapter that's because they don't actually, as far as I'm aware. Oh no, they do. The Thousand Suns is coded um, to Egyptian. Egyptian. Yeah. But their space marines aren't called. They don't have like Middle Eastern names, really. Yeah. Or they have like Egypt. They have like they, they mythical have... Egyptian names, like Ahriman and things like that. Yeah. And, and again, I, it's 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 an interesting thing when um, when attempts are made to transfer existing real world cultures into fictionalized worlds because it can be done in lots of different ways and there are things to discuss about every way to do it exactly and we're also again we're not we if we devoted the time that was needed for this discussion we'd have whole like yeah the listeners would be here for a while yeah i mean they have a whole chapter that's that's scandinavian and Oh yeah, the space Vikings. They're called and they're called the space wolves. Yeah, and then you get into the iconography of Nord of uh-huh. Viking stuff and, and how, how that's been. Co-opted. been... Mm-hmm. And you sort of get, and then there's a whole yeah. You open up so many barrels of fish. Also, one thing I find hilarious um, on the subject of chapters of Space Marines is that so many of them have the word space at the beginning. Yeah. So you got Space Marines, and they have you have the chapters the space wolves and 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 stuff like that, but. Actually, in the law, no one says space. They say the void. Mm. And so the only time that they use the word space is when they're talking about 
space wolves, space orcs, space marines. Yeah. It's fine. It's, you know, it's interesting. It's like, you know, in Star Wars, like, what's a falcon? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. <sighs> yeah. There's, there's, there's too many questions and not enough answers. Uh, and we will be here for a long, long time. But I definitely think it's good that, um, you know, people are seeing a gap in the fiction that they love mm. and they are making things creatively to, 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 to remedy that in ways that, that they enjoy. And what's been interesting is seeing online people picking up this uh, Daughters of Persephone idea and rolling with it and, and making their own like successor chapters or, or posting their own kind of models that they've converted uh, to be, to be on that vibe. Um, and I remember seeing another, there was another uh, female chapter or chapter that included women. That was like a homebrew one. Uh, I think it was called the Krakenborn. Right. And they had a very cool aesthetic. It was kind of, um, yeah, kind of, uh, they had those, I think they had those like big round Greek shields, but also a very kind of like a uh, trident-y uh, right. kind of um, somewhat Viking-y vibe. I, like I'll need to, Yeah, I'll need to refresh my memory of it. I should have honestly done that before yeah. the episode recording, but I'm an amateur and a hack. It's the pilot. <laughs> <laughs> but, but also, and I think... We've sat here and we've we've criticised Games Workshop from pillar to post, pretty much, and the law and the way they've approached things. But we started the episode with their statement, mm-hmm. um, which could have gone further, but at least it went us it went away. It went a certain distance to say, you know, we don't want you, your, we don't want people taking that, co-opting it, and bringing it into our space. Um, yeah, they realised that they had, over the course of a couple of decades, um, gradually been making a mistake, and then when they realised that it had got to a certain point where they had been unironically presenting, um, you know, in many cases, unironically presenting the, the, the Imperium as the good guys, they realised that that actually was having a consequence, and they've realised that they need to do something about it. So, it's better than a lot of companies do. Yeah. Yeah, and we we give them credit for that. Mm-hmm. You know, the the conversation has only just started. Yes, and and that's important for them to remember because it's one thing to put out a statement saying we don't like Nazis, but it's another thing to actually make concrete steps to put your money where your mouth is and actually work to solve that problem. And I, I really hope that they can kind of build on that momentum going forward. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a great place to, to finish off this episode on the Imperium of Man. The interesting thing being, we've sat here and we've spoken at length, but the the, the world is so much bigger than... than I think one thing we, we should, if we want the listeners to go with, the world is bigger than just humanity, yes. especially in this place. There are so many factions and interesting uh, peoples and races in the setting that we we have to explore. Uh, and we are going to with, with following episodes. Uh, so I hope that listening to this, you haven't been put off. Um, <laughs> we're going to do it anyway. Uh, and the production values are going to go up. <laughs> we, we, we can only hope. Um, but in short, fuck fascists and uh, come with us on this journey as we, we're going to explore all the weird little corners of the Warhammer 40,000 universe. But then also there's so many other fictional worlds that really, they... 
they invoke so much passion and interest that they're worth really digging into. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're going to be talking a lot about 40k because Kinko and I both love it as a setting and we want to really take it apart. And there's so much. There's so much to do, but we're going to hit other stuff. We've got plans for other settings and places. We're going to bring in friends of ours to, to talk about things that we don't know so much about. So please, I mean, I don't want to say hit that like and subscribe. <laughs> subscribe to us on wherever we end up. This is the pilots. We don't even know where we're going to be, but let's say Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud. Yeah, all, all the, all, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Wherever you found us. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, yeah, wherever you found us, if we foisted it on you, apologies. But uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see you soon for another episode of the Lorax. But uh, until then, you know, be safe. Uh, fuck Nazis. Well, don't fuck her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> don't. <laughs>